0: with me. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have gathered us this morning around your word. We pray that you would send us out rejoicing and empowered by your Holy Spirit. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Be seated. Good morning, everyone. My, my name is David Barr. I am one of the clergy at St. George's just down the road, and um, I'm delighted to, to be with y'all today. I know some of you and have been taught by some of you, and so I'm I'm deeply honored to be here. I also must say, this is the largest pulpit I have ever seen. You could fit five preachers in here all at the same time. Probably makes a great Pentecost sermon. Anyway, uh, bad church jokes. Well, I, I, I uh, would like to talk a little bit this morning, um, mostly actually about our, our reading from Isaiah. And I realize most, most people don't typically love reading Isaiah as a whole unit Most people are familiar with Isaiah in little bits and snippets. You might know certain passages from here or there, typically from Isaiah 40 on. That's where it gets a little more joyful. The beginning is, I won't say drudgery, but it is solemn. How about that? Uh, It is a complicated text. The whole book is uh, sort of meandering and and wandering. It is nonlinear, although interestingly, it is, of course, uh, historical. It's a sort of historical telling a poetic historical retelling of Israel's life, uh, especially her conflict with uh, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. But I think for many, many folks, uh, if you were to just read through all of it in one fell swoop, it can feel um, ahistorical, maybe sort of confusing um, and unrealistic. However, it is my conviction I love Isaiah. It's my conviction that Isaiah is remarkably realistic. I think it might be one of the most realistic books of the Bible, in a way. I think it's as real as it gets. Here's what I mean. You see, Isaiah is prophetic literature, right? So it speaks about what God is doing. That is, it narrates the sequence of life's events from inside God's purposes, It tells us what's going on actually, truly, really. So, you know, you and I see history and we see events and occurrences. But of course, for God, that's not how history occurs. I'm not sure exactly how history occurs for God, but it's certainly not that way. And so you have to see in this sort of non linear presentation, this non sequential mode of speaking about the world and about Israel, we actually get this profound glimpse of God's purposes, of his character. Of his goodness, and of course, that's exactly how we experience life too. I think about it this way. So last week, one of my children was sick, and I had to uh, stay home with her for the whole day. And if I had some sort of hidden narrator who could see the inside of my own thoughts and to narrate the whole day of me taking care of my seventeen month year old month seventeen month old daughter, it would be nonlinear. It would begin with, let's just say, let's begin positive. Me delighting over how cute she is. And then it would probably spiral off into me figuring out breakfast. Or, and then it would narrate me being frustrated because I burned something. Or that it, it would be totally incoherent. There would not be a sort of perfect sequence of beginning and end. And I can guarantee you this. There would be no chance that by the very end of the day... When my wife came home, Everything's sort of neatly tied together. She's not going to come home to tea sort of going off and being made, you know, there's a kettle or something, soup being made on the oven. It's going to be a mess, most likely. But my point is, we, you, you and I, we do not live life as some cleanly narrated set of events, do we? None of our lives move that way. Even when we look back and we try to sort of procure some sort of logic to all of it, it can feel forced, can it not? So Isaiah, you see, details this interior logic of God's relationship with Israel over this particular period of time, and we get a glimpse of life as it really is. It's life as it really is. So in this way, this form, poetic, wandering hyper-specific and then universal, it's extremely realistic. In some ways, it's almost too realistic. I mean, think about it. Have there not been seasons in your life? I know there have been seasons in my own life where I felt absolutely no progress at all. There, of course, have also been seasons of great warmth and uh, renewal. But I can never predict them. You see, that's, again, just what we see in Isaiah. And, of course, the most remarkable aspect of this is that the character of God emerges, becomes evident in all and each of those varied, cir- varied circumstances throughout the text. We see him act with incredible grace and brightness and surprise and even, at times, deep fear. But in our reading today, for instance, Isaiah chapter 49 we have this incredible moment. It's truly sort of unprecedented throughout Isaiah where the prophet reflects on his own life. We get to see him sort of assess what he's been doing and and how things have gone. And if you look at this reading, you'll notice that it begins with this extraordinary confidence and then it sort of spirals into something else. Listen to what he says. At the very beginning he says, listen to me you coastlands, that is people from far away, from way off. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me, I'm a known quantity, he has given me a name and a purpose. He made my mouth like a sword, he gave me a calling, he set a task before me. In the shadow of his hand he defended me. He made me a polished arrow, he gave me a specific target. He said to me, you are my servant in whom I will be glorified. So look at this confidence that the prophet has in his calling. He says, God built me to do exactly what I'm doing. Call people back to relationship with Israel. He made me perfectly to accomplish this task. And then he says, but I've labored in vain. And I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. If we think about this historically, his own reflection on his life, it's actually true. This is precisely what tends to happen with Israel and her prophets. Israel doesn't listen. The prophets are punished for their fidelity and their duty. And then they return back to their idols. And you may even know this, but in the Jewish tradition, the sort of uh, story that they tell about Isaiah is that he was running away from his captors. He hid inside of a hollowed out tree. And then his captors, rather than pull him out or extract him, decided they would simply saw the tree in two. That's how Isaiah... Is said to have died. He was sawn into. In other words, not an effective way to end your program. And so this prophet's lament here is real. It's true. It feels as if nothing is working out. It kind of reminds me of this section um, from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. You you may know that work. It's a famous um, work of poetry that was people say it was Eliot's greatest work, he has this section, sort of abrupt, comes out of nowhere, where he suddenly becomes um, haltingly autobiographical. Listen to what he says. He writes, So here I am in the middle way, having had 20 years, 20 years largely wasted, trying to learn to use words in every attempt is a wholly new start and a different kind of Failure. He continues, each venture is a new beginning, arrayed on the inarticulate with shabby equipment always deteriorating in the general mess of imprecision and feeling. <laughs> How's that for an autobiography? You have to remember he was in his early 50s. His, his marriage had failed. He had fallen out of favor with his literary cohort, the famous Bloomsbury group. He'd become a Christian and they hated that. And so for Eliot, right in the middle of his life, he stops, pauses, and wonders, does any of this make any sense? Like, what am I even doing here? And then he writes it in a poem that everyone will read. You see, for Isaiah and all the prophets, for Eliot, for many of us, have we not had that experience as well? Might not be in your mid 50s, could be your mid 20s, could be your mid 70s, could be your teens, could be any time in your life, but have you not had times where you look about your life and you feel as if all of it is totally incoherent? Any sort of togetherness is totally a mystery. I have felt that way before, only assuming you have as well. The figure who I think makes this the most clear, even more than T.S. Eliot writing about his own literary career, is John the Baptist. In our reading from John, we have the beginning of his ministry. But if you jump forward in the Gospel of John, you see this really fascinating story that portrays a sort of different vision of John. You remember it? He's stuck in jail. Do y'all, do y'all, are y'all familiar with this? He's stuck in jail. You can nod if you agree. If you say, no, I'm going to keep going anyway. Um, But it's that part where John is, he is in prison and he wonders uh, what Jesus is doing. So he sends his messengers out to ask him a particular question. They ask him, are you truly the one to come or should we wait for somebody else? And I think what's clearly going on in this instance is John has proclaimed who Jesus was. He's seen who he is. Remember, he has literally baptized Jesus. He saw the Holy Spirit come down from heaven and descend upon Jesus, anointing him for ministry. And he heard the voice of the Almighty God proclaim out from the sky that this is his beloved Son with whom he is well pleased. Listen to him. And yet, sitting in a prison cell, he simply cannot help but wonder, is he really the one? because I'm still stuck here in this prison. And if he's really the one, then what in the world am I doing? What in the world is he doing? And so he sends his messengers. And do you remember what Jesus says? He says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor, they receive good news. In other words, John, you are looking for the wrong thing. You thought that I would become the king of Israel. You thought that I would eradicate the Romans from our midst. You thought that I would come and take seat in the temple and be the Messiah uh, that you had expected. But I'm doing something far more hidden and yet far more impressive. Jesus says, I'm building my kingdom. It is surely coming, but I am doing it in a way that you would never expect and it's even better than you expect. You look around, you search for coherence, you search for integrity, you search for anything that seems like a narrative kind of sequence that makes your standards. And he says I'm doing something far more impressive than any of that. And of course you remember in the life of John he never gets out of prison, does he? He 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 is beheaded at the behest of a, a wicked daughter. But, of course, if you have eyes to see and faith to believe, you can say about John exactly what Jesus said about him. Do you remember what he says about John? He says, there is no one born of women who is greater than John the Baptist. No one greater in all of the scriptures than John the Baptist. You see, that's exactly, again, what's going on in Isaiah. The prophet says, I have become exactly who God made me to be. I've done exactly what I'm supposed to do. I am everything that I've been called to be, and yet I have spent my strength for absolutely nothing. And yet you have to see what God says to him in response. You can even look at it. It's verse 6. He says, it, it it is too light a thing. That you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to b- bring back the preserved of Israel. He says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation might reach the end of the earth. He goes on, Kings shall see and arise, princes shall then prostrate themselves, because the Lord Almighty has chosen you. Again, from a historical perspective, none of this makes any sense. All of this text, you've got to remember, it is supposed to be about bringing Israel back from Babylon, out of slavery, back into the promised land, all of which Isaiah does, but of course is long dead before any of it happens. What that means is the only way to make sense of any of this passage from Isaiah is to see that God has, in fact, moved history and people and heaven and all of earth in order for this passage to be about his son. I won't Think about what that means. I mean, it's a metaphysical statement. You can think about that later, but it's profound. It means Isaiah does testify to the redemption of God from the Babylonians. Of course, that's true. They do come back from Babylon. That's what this book is literally about, but what happens next, of course? <coughs> Excuse me. What happens next, of course, is that it's the Assyrians and the Persians and the Romans. It's this never-ending onslaught of rulers. So it must be about something else. What it is about, of course, is what God was doing in Jesus Christ. I want you to listen to these words one last time as if they were specifically about Jesus Christ. He writes, It is too light a thing think of Jesus Christ. It is too light a thing that you should raise up the tribes of Jacob. I will make you a light for the nations. Kings shall see and come to you. Princes shall prostrate themselves in front of you because the God of Israel has chosen you. In other words, what this means is there is no situation that is too disordered, too confusing, too chaotic, too strung out that God cannot redeem. You see, the Christian claim that Isaiah and the prophecy proves is that all of history has been ordered in some mysterious way that I don't fully understand in order to usher in the redemption of the world through his son. And therefore, what that means for you and what that means for me on any Sunday, an epiphany, or any Tuesday, any time of the year, is that God's promises can still be true, whatever circumstances you might be in. And I want you to not hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that uh, sort of petty front, that everything happens for some reason and you can find out what that is. What I am saying and what Isaiah shows us, what Isaiah, I believe, proves to us is that all of our stories in some profound way, that some great mystery, all of our stories can be made coherent in Jesus Christ. All of the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, John, Paul, Peter, you, your family, your cousins, your brothers, sisters, friends, your neighborhood, they can be this sprawling mess of narratival incoherence, and he can make it whole. Just think about it. That is exactly what he does to Isaiah. The thing that Isaiah set out to do, Jesus actually completes. He is the arrow that retrieves his people Israel. He is the one who has become the light for all nations. He is the one who has become the universal sacrifice for our sins. He has done it. See what the cross does. And he can do it for you. you know, in, in closing, so I try to think what this might look like. I, uh, I've been ordained three years now, so not all that long. But one of the things that I, I didn't think about as much when I was ordained and I came here to do ministry was that I would spend a lot of time with people who are dying. You know, a lot of clergy, you, you might not realize this, but we, we spend time in hospitals and stuff, you know. So if you, if you go to a hospital, we'll, we'll find you. Um, but you're with people as they walk the sort of last chapter in their race. And one of the things I've noticed is that people do tend to approach the inevitable end of their lives in different ways. Some people are like a deer in the headlights, It's almost as if they've never thought that their lives would end, and in fact, they're unprepared. I've seen that happen. Others approach the end of their lives, and and they might not have a sense of um, deep testimony to the coherence of their lives. You know, they're not going to walk you through everything as if it's some grand story. It's not like reading a novel necessarily. But they have this deep sense of gratitude. They're grateful. They've seen what God has done in their lives. Do you see what that means? Do you see what that is? You see, you can approach your whole life, the vagaries of, uh, of living complex lives, incoherent chapters in your own narrative, whole seasons that don't seem to make any sense to you. You can still see what God has done in your life, despite narrative inconsistencies. You can fight all your life to have a a perfect life that fits tidy within chapter sections. It will never happen. But the thing that you can do, that you see on the faces of human beings who die in the Lord at the end of their time, is gratitude. Why? Because God has done profound things for you and for me. In other words, friends, you do not need find a perfect coherence in the movement of your life, not now, not in the future, not in the past. You simply have to open your eyes to the gracious work that God Almighty has done in and through you and for you through Jesus Christ His Son. That is profound news and epiphany A season where we pull back the layers of why things are going on, who Jesus really is, what this world is about, and what you see, friends, is that Jesus Christ is the center who holds all of our stories together, yours and mine and all those who put their trust in him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.